All right, ready for God's Word? Uh, Romans chapter 2, and uh, this, is a, um, this is a heavy passage today in our um, series called The Power of the Gospel. And so uh, we've got a lot of verses to get through, and um, we're going to start with this. There's really, and we kind of started with this theme last week, but there's no good way to deliver bad news. There's no good way to deliver bad news, whether that's um, a call from a doctor or a police officer at the door, or a hastily called press conference, or a friend or a loved one who comes to you and says, I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. There's just no good way to deliver bad news. And the reality is, I think we'd all acknowledge this, that bad news is an inescapable part of life. It's an inescapable part of life. And in, in this, the sin-marred world that we live in delivers bad news to us on, a, on an ongoing and regular Basis. And in fact, um, I don't even need to really convince you of that because this year has convinced us of the fact that bad news comes to us at a pretty steady pace. The worst of the bad news, if we were to rank these things, but the worst of the bad news that we could possibly hear is that humanity stands condemned by God as a result of our sin and facing the wrath and judgment of God as a result. And we can pretend, we can kind of make something up in our own minds to convince ourselves of something different than that, but our denial does not negate the truth that the worst of the bad news that we could possibly hear is that we are separated from God by our sin. Our discomfort with the notion of judgment, of God's righteous standard, does not mean that we're not going to face it. We can be uncomfortable with something and know it's coming, and that is true in this case. And so the pressing need for us is, is to admit that we are facing the wrath of God, that we are facing His judgment, and then consider what needs to happen in light of that fact. Denial won't help us. We're going to see in today's passage, in fact, that what facing the wrath of God really means for us. What does it mean to face the wrath of God? Now, I have a very, as I said, a very lengthy and challenging passage uh, in front of us today. So if you have their Bible, your Bible in front of you, follow along as I read this, but it's going to take us a bit to get through it, and then we'll begin to working through, work through what it means to face the wrath of God. Ready to go? If you're ready, just say ready. All right, Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works." To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you can call yourself, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written, uh, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. It's okay after a passage like that to go, whoa. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's heavy. There's a lot there. We're going to pound through it here with this understanding of what the facing the wrath of God really means for us. So, facing the wrath of God means, first of all, I cannot presume upon God's kindness, but must repent. Okay? No presuming upon God's kindness, 
but only repentance coming from us. Paul goes back and forth in the early part of this letter between addressing Jews and Gentiles in the church and the particular issues that each of those people groups brought to the church that they were now both part of. He comes back to that whole discussion, in fact, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He comes back to that in some detail. It's not super clear who he's addressing in verse 1. Is he talking to the Jewish believers? Is he talking to the Gentile believers? We're not exactly clear when he says in verse 1, every one of you, every one of you, is that the Jewish believers, is it the Gentile believers? We're not sure. Maybe it's, maybe it's unclear for a reason by, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that every one of us would read and go, well, I think he might be talking to me. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So it's possible that he intends, he intends it here for whomever will listen, and certainly any of us can fall into this trap, I would say, of this hyper-morality where we live, at least externally, this very moral life, this hyper-morality that judges and condemns others for the very things that we ourselves have struggled with or are struggling with. In other words, no one is without need of God's grace, and we can get, see if this isn't true, we can get really judgy with one another. Just nod your head if you think that's true. We can get really judgy with one another. And again, we're all in need of God's grace, so it's kind of inexplicable that we would actually be like that. Why would we be so hard on one another when we all need God's grace and forgiveness? Now, if he's addressing the Jews in particular here, he's saying to them, you can't lean on your favored status as the people of God, and a lot of Jews at the time were doing that. Again, if we're hearing this with our ears, we're saying we can't lean on our favored status as Christians, as members of the church. We all need His grace. We all need His forgiveness. We all need it. As much as anyone else, even as believers, he says in the very first part of verse 1, you have no excuse. There's no excusing ourselves for any of this. Now, we need to be clear when we talk about judging, we need to be clear exactly uh, what uh, God is talking about here. There were people that were concerned this morning when I was walking across the parking lot with a bat. And... um, what I might do with it, I think that uh, you might be happy right now that physical distancing prevents me from bringing any of you on stage to do an actual demonstration here. But, um, you know, there are some people, when we start to think about judging, who take the verse Matthew 7, 1, and wield that verse like a bat. Do you know what Matthew 7, 1 says? Uh, judge not that you be not judged. And, and what, what we do is we, we, we bring this verse out anytime any of us ever seeks to have any input into the life of any other believer. Hey, I've just noticed this going on in your life, brother. I, 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 just, I, I saw this happening, sister. I just felt like I need to point this out to you. 
and it's someone that you're in relationship with, and you seek to bring them to a closer understanding of what it means to walk with Christ, but then they come out with the bat. Judge not, judge not, judge not, lest you be judged. And they wield the bat, and they knock down any attempt at all to bring any kind of judgment in a person's life. The club prevents any personal confrontation from happening between believers. But that's not at all the intent of Jesus' words here. We want to look at Matthew 7, and we want to tie it closely into Romans chapter 2 here, and we want to take away any judgment that's going to happen whatsoever. But that's not the intent of Jesus' words, judge not that you be not judged. In fact, Robert Mounts says it very clearly here, uh, the kind of judging both Jesus and Paul referred to was not a sane appraisal of character based on conduct. Okay, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 2. It was not a sane appraisal of character based on conduct, but it was a hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of the other person. That's what Romans 2 is about, and that's what Matthew 7, 1 is about. This isn't me and you as brothers in Christ trying to help each other grow in Christ, a sane appraisal of character and conduct. This is a prohibition against this this hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of another person. I'm done with the bat now. I don't want it to come flying out of my hand at any point. In fact, shortly after Jesus says uh, this in Matthew 7, 1, it's in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Shortly after this, He says, in fact, that with respect to, to um, false teachers, that you have to judge their fruit. In other words, there is this assessment that's going on. And if you read into the rest of the New Testament, you see in the book of Acts, you see it in the letters of Paul, you see it in the letters of John and Peter, we see repeatedly confrontation of sin, discipline by the church. We see conversations about how to live more holy for the Lord, repeated instances of people being rightly judged, confronted, and appealed to because of their sin and on the basis of what God says about it, and then an appeal for them to repent of that sin. In other words, judge not that you be not judged is not a license to sin and never be confronted about it. So don't use it in that way. What it is in Matthew 7 and what it is in Romans 2 is this hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of the other person. All right, do we feel like we got that? You got it? I don't want to have to explain it again because there's a lot going on here today. So you got that part? We can move on. So further, again on this topic of judgment, it isn't that there isn't actually an overall judgment, a universal judgment that's going to happen here or that we shouldn't be living aligned with God's righteousness, because we've already established that in this series. We're going to talk about it even more in the coming messages. It is that ultimately, ultimately God's going to do the judging, and we're not to be the one who judges. Verse 2, we know, notice what it says here, we know that the judgment of, what does it say? Are you with me? It is the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God that rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
And then he asks a series of three questions here. In our English text, it comes through as just two, but two of the questions are compounded together. So here's this little quiz. Question one is in verse three. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? And the answer is, no, you are not going to escape the judgment of God. We're all in the same boat. Every individual has to settle their personal sin issue with God. No one is escaping that. Here's the second question. It's in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance? Talking about His restraint. Don't you get like a really good sense of that in your daily life, that God's restraining Himself with respect to you? I just feel like that every day. I just feel like, God, you could open up the ground and swallow me whole on any day of the week, and that God is just being so kind and, and so restrained and so patient with me. And Paul uses all three of these words here. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? And I wrote down the answer is, yeah, maybe I do. I think I do presume on that from time to time. And then question three, do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the entire point of God's kindness. Not that we would presume upon it, not that we would take advantage of it, not that we would take it for granted, but that we would see the kindness of God as giving us time to repent, to get it right, and to live for Him. And so, yes, I do realize that the kindness, the grace, the restraint of God, the long-suffering of God is not to be taken for granted, but as the pathway to repentance and change. And the question is, and he's going to come back to this again in Romans chapter 6, the question is, are you presuming upon or taking advantage of the grace of God? Because if that's your gig, being hard on others condemning others, pointing out others' sin, while the filthiness and unrepentance remains in your own heart, while you yourself are doing the same things or worse, if that's true of you, if that's your gig, then you have no claim on Christ. That it would be very, very difficult for you to claim that you're even a believer because of the language really that Paul uses next in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, unrepentant, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. That's the, at the end of the age, still hasn't happened yet, it's coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And verse 5, the, the wrath that he talks about here in verse 5, the judgment of God that he talks about in verse 2, are theological words with all kinds of implication and meaning for us. And it's an uncomfortable phrase when we start talking about the wrath of God. It's an uncomfortable phrase in people's ears today. No one wants to think about God in this way. No one outside the church wants to think about God this way. But even inside the church, among believers, we don't want to think about God in this way. In fact, Christians have become so soft in thinking about the wrath of God that so many pastors and churches and approaches to church ministry have started rounding off the edges and let's make this comfortable for people to hear. Let's sprinkle some sugar on the top of it. 
Let's use softer words, kinder words. Let's avoid all the words of judgment and wrath. But here we are in this series on the power of the gospel, and we're looking at 16 facets of the gospel. And one of the facets is the wrath of God, because apart from the wrath of God, we don't even see our need for the gospel. It's not easy to think that God is genuinely, this is what wrath is, that God is genuinely displeased, and that His holiness demands to be appeased. And yet here it is. Unless we have repented, we are under the wrath of God. Repentance is very simple to understand. We agree with God. It's two parts, repentance. We agree with God. We agree with God about our sin. We agree with God about the separation that exists. We agree with God that we deserve judgment, and we agree with God that the only remedy for that is Jesus Christ, His Son. We agree with God, and we turn. We turn from our way of living our lives, wholly surrender to Jesus Christ in His way. We agree, and we turn, and that's repentance. His holiness demands this approach. This is the only way for God's wrath to be appeased. It is for us to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and by faith accept what Jesus Christ has done. Don't presume upon God's kindness, but agree with Him and turn to Him. Well, secondly here, that's the first one. Secondly, uh, facing the wrath of God also means that I cannot claim an exemption but must engage in well-doing. Now, I feel that anytime we put a, a phrase like well-doing, which is right out of the passage here, but anytime we put that there, anytime we start talking about being judged by our works, which is also said in this passage, I feel like I need to say first that we do not engage in well-doing to earn His favor. It's not on the front end of our salvation that we do this well-doing as if to gain something from Him, but it is the well-doing is the evidence that we've already exercised our faith and been saved. We've already received His favor. In Reformation language, this is sola fide. This is uh, by faith alone. And so when we talk about well-doing, the only doing that really matters on the front end of our salvation, the only doing that really matters is the doing that Jesus did. It's what He did on the cross. It's the sacrifice of His life. That is the only well-doing that matters with respect to us gaining salvation. Any other doing is a, an after-the-fact evidence of what Christ did for us. And that's what we're talking about here. And so Paul says here um, in this judgment, verse 6, God will render each according to his, notice, his works. Okay, that's the after salvation well-doing, the evidence that our salvation is genuine. And then he gives the two choices and outcomes. For those who are repentant, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, will, He will give eternal life. And then secondly, for those who do not repent, verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but actually obey unrighteousness, there's going to be wrath and fury. And He describes that further, 
in verse 9, there's going to be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil. He talks about Jews and Greeks both being in the same, um, the same situation here. Then he goes back to the repentant, verse 10, but glory, honor, peace for everyone who does good, again, for Jews and Gentiles, as long as they do good. And the thing that we can count on in this judgment is that God judges in His own way. He does not judge the way we judge. We are partial. We are subjective. We run everything through our own grid. That's the way we judge. That's why it's so faulty. But verse 11, God shows no partiality. God's objectivity is solid. The criteria is set. Everything is based on the unchangeable character of who He is. He is righteous. He is holy. That's never changing. And every single human being is going to be judged on the same standard and the same criteria, His character alone. And twice He says that this applies to both Jews and Gentiles, so that no one has special status. And the Jews certainly could be thinking, and we're, we're often thinking that they did have special status. And sometimes we in the church can think we have special status on all of this, and we do not. Every one of us has to come to faith in the same way. There's no special status because you come to a church. There's no special status because you were raised in a Christian home. There's no special status because you were raised in what is one time called a Christian country, but it isn't, by the way, or the Christian West. There's no special status for these things. There's no special status if you were baptized, christened as a baby. No exemptions from the wrath of God unless you are active in well-doing and seeking for glory and honor and immortality, the glory of Christ, the honor of His name, the immortality. In other words, I'm all about the eternal. If you look at my life right now, what you're going to see is that even the things that I'm pursuing in this world all have an eye toward eternity, that my values are driven by, by what God is building in His kingdom, not what I can build here and now. And unless that's true of you, you're going to face the wrath of God. And that well-doing, we have to be clear again, that well-doing is not you working to earn your salvation, but the outflow of a heart already given to Jesus Christ, it's the evidence of genuine faith. So, do you have it? Are you doing it? Is there well-doing happening in your life? I mean, pause right now and think about your life. What, what would you say right now is the evidence of faith in your life based on the well-doing that's happening, the works that you're doing for Christ in this world? In what way are you seeking glory and honor and immortality? Because if you're not, if you can't, if you can't mark anything and say, well, that's, that's well-doing, that's not for me, that's for others, that's genuine, it's an act of love, I do this, I give that. But if you can't put anything on that list, what evidence do you have that your faith is genuine? All right, that's two. Here's the third one. Facing the wrath of God means I cannot be hypocritical, but must be a doer of the Word. 
Now, this echoes some of what we heard in the first five verses with respect to judging others. And at the core of this judgment is hypocrisy, which is such a great word. Uh, Hypocrisy doesn't appear as a word in this passage, but of course, he speaks about hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy, if we were to define it, speaks about being two-faced. I'm two-faced. I'm one way with you. I'm a different way with someone else. I present something to the church, but I'm very different with God. I'm this way with my family. I'm this way with my friends. I'm a two-faced person. I act this way at work, but with, when I'm with my buddies, it's entirely different. I'm two-faced. I'm a, hypoc- I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite. And in this case, it's really about entertaining sin that I condemn in others. So inwardly, I'm struggling with the same things, or maybe I'm struggling with a different sin, but I'm pointing the finger at you. I'm acting as if I don't need grace. I'm acting as if I don't need forgiveness, when in fact, I'm just as much in need. And the antidote Paul says to that is, you got to be attentive. you got to be attentive to the Word of God. Quit making it up for yourself. He actually says in verse 12, no one is being judged or getting saved apart from what we hear in God's Word. And it's the same standard for all of humanity. And then he says something that sounds an awful lot, if you know the book of James, it sounds an awful lot like James 1.22, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Okay, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says in verse 13 here, for it is not the hearers of the law. And, and listen, anytime you see the word law here, just insert the word Bible. Just hear Bible, okay? That's what Paul's talking about. So it's not the hearers of the Bible who are righteous before God, but doers of the Bible who will be justified. It's not enough just to listen to a sermon. Listen to a sermon this week. It's not enough to do your devotions every morning. Did my devotions all week. Not enough to go to your small group and, 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 and talk about the sermon. Not enough just to be reading through the Bible. Attend that Bible study. Read this Christian book. It's not enough. You have to be a doer of it, not just hearing, not just filling your mind with with the knowledge. And then he plays out some examples. Verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law, don't have the Bible, by nature do what the Bible requires, they are a Bible to themselves, even though they don't have the Bible. People without the Bible who do what the Bible says are demonstrating the universal nature of God's law in creation. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And we all know people in this community, you might work with such a person in in some charity work or maybe um, a person in your neighborhood or, or somebody in your workplace or in your family who doesn't profess to know Jesus Christ. They're not religious in any way at all. They don't go to church. They're not interested in the Bible, but they're a really good person. They have a great a great marriage. They've raised great kids. They contribute in their community. They volunteer at the food bank. They're over at the Busby Center. They donate to charities. They're, they help raise money for this, uh, this effort or that effort. And, and they just live really good moral lives. And what those people are showing you, there's a lot of those people in this city. And what those people are showing you is that internally 
They have a conscience that's actually oriented toward God because that's the way God fashioned it. In fact, if you go back to our study in chapter 1, in the latter part of chapter 1, we said that the creation itself testifies to the existence of God. And now Paul says not only the creation, but that moral compass that people have, that internal conscience that tells them to be good and moral people, even that testifies to the existence of God. Because otherwise, where would we even get that moral compass if it didn't, if it didn't come from God Himself? So this is the universal nature of God's law and the creation. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's their conscience. It bears witness. And so we have this built-in conscience. conscience. This is the moral code inside of us telling us that there's a God. And because of that, verse 16, on that day of judgment and wrath, when according to my gospel, Paul writes, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This, This is God in the judgment. Can I just go back to another era now? He takes the VHS tape off the shelf of our life, and he pops it in the VCR. Kids are like, what are you talking about? And he presses rewind. Remember you had to wait? And you were back to the beginning. And then God presses play. It's your life. And up on the screen, your life starts playing. Every moment, every thought, every word, every activity, every relationship, everything you ever did or said, it's all being played back now on the tape. And it's going to get compared and held up. We're going to watch that life. God's going to watch that life. And it's going to get, it's going to get compared to the Word of God. And, and nothing's going to be a secret because it's all on the tape. Nothing's going to be a secret. It's all on the tape. It's all going to get played. Now, the thing is, the thing about the secrets is, I mean, God knows all of them. It's all on the tape. Okay? It's all going to get played. And if you have sin in your life, hidden sin that you think is hidden, God knows about it. And you've been hypocritical about that, pointing the finger at others. It's all on the tape. You have your secret sin, but you're condemning others. It's all right there. If that's you, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. But listen, the other side of it is, God knows all the secret things too. So, um, you know, like for most of us, we all still have sin issues. All of us, we still have sin issues that we're struggling with us. And if we have a pure heart and a sincere heart about it, we're not hard on others. And in fact, in our own private times with the Lord, the Lord knows all this too. And it's all also on the tape, just you and God, all those times when it's just you and God. And tears are coming from your eyes and you're wrestling with it because you don't want to do this sin anymore. And it keeps gripping you and you keep falling into temptation and you're battling it as hard as you can. And it's only you and God that knows and you're pouring your heart out to him. It's so comforting to know that he also knows that. That that also is going to get played back. That God knows your heart and he knows your struggle. And I'm telling you, when we get to Romans 7, we're going to be nodding our heads and saying amen and identifying with Paul in the massive struggle it is to continue to live for him. When you have a sincere heart and you're pouring yourself out to Jesus in that way, he knows that. And that knowledge that he knows that secret that's just between you and him is so comforting. 
Isn't that, isn't that comforting to know that he knows that? Well, verses 17 through 24, we don't have time to unpack all the details in these verses, but it's an extended example of what it looks like when someone just simply plays the part of a believer but hasn't let the Word of God transform their lives. And verse 21 is really the punch on this little section here where he says, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. You who claim to be a believer, you love God, you read the Bible, but you're pointing the finger at others, why aren't you living this out? We ought to be reading the Word of God and allowing it to penetrate our hearts and transform us, change us day by day. I mean, I just finished another pass through the Bible. I just finished, like last week, just finished reading through the Bible again. And I don't know at this stage, I don't know how many times I've read through the Bible. I haven't kept track of that in my life. But I'm not bragging about that. I mean, I would think that you would expect that because I'm your pastor that I actually spend some time in the Bible. Do you have that expectation of me? Right. So so no big deal that I've read through the Bible again. I'm so blessed that I've been able to do that. I don't know how long it took me this time around because, I don't, again, I don't keep track of that. And, um, and, and, and sometimes I read just a, 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 I'll read just a verse or just a paragraph and sometimes a chapter and sometimes multiple chapters, but it's, it's not on a set program, okay? So I'm just reading the Scripture. But I'm so impressed. Again, you would expect that of me, but I'm so impressed by those people who, you know, don't get a paycheck to study the Bible. Um, but, but I'm so impressed by those who are so into the Scriptures, and leaning into them and pressing in with God to hear what the Scriptures say to them in studying it and reading it and memorizing it. Their time in the world is not, in the Word, is not simply a, you know, I'm not just checking a box. I'm not getting through four chapters because I have to. I'm not just prepping for a lesson. I'm in the Bible this week, but it's just to prep a lesson. But they're in the Scriptures for their own benefit so that they might grow in the knowledge of God. And I had a professor back in college and seminary, he said this so often, he said it to every generation, every student, year after year, if there's any other heritage grads here, you're going to know this, but David Barker would say, every time, listen, every time you crack the book, every time you crack the book, you're staring into the face of God. And when you stare into the face of God, you can't help but be changed. You can't help but be changed. And so, so for sure, for sure. Be a hearer of the Word. Okay? Be a, be a reader of the Word. Be a studier of the Word. Be a teacher of the Word. Be all these things, but don't be any of those things if you're not also committed to being a doer of the Word. Do not neglect to be a doer of the Word. All right. Heavy, heavy stuff. One more to go. You're still with me. Amen? Still with me. Here we go. Facing the wrath of God means I cannot be religious, but must give my heart to Christ. The mention in verse 25 of circumcision, it could be rather confusing just even to read this passage and then just try to sort it out. You might have to read it multiple times in order to grasp what exactly Paul is saying here. Uh, Circumcision, of course, relates to the Jewish practice Um, that signified initiation into the covenant community. What can be really helpful here now is to understand that circumcision was a religious rite that God prescribed for Israel. But if you just insert the word religion or the phrase religious observance 
if you sub either of those in for the word circumcision here, it's really going to help you read through this passage and know exactly what Paul was arguing. Paul says for the Old Testament, the Old Covenant Jew, that it was of value, circumcision was of value if you also obey the law, the Bible. So it's okay to do the religious ritual as long as you're wholly committed to the Word of God. You're actually saved by faith. But if you break the law, you don't obey the Bible, your circumcision, your religion, see how this works? Your religion becomes irreligion. You're not actually saved or forgiven. Even if you have the religious mark, even if you've done the ritual. And so then he asks this question, verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised, irreligious, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his irreligiosity be regarded as religion? He doesn't have this religious mark, but he's attentive to the Word. Isn't he saved, even though he doesn't have the outward religion? And the answer is yes, because it's not about the outward. It's about what's going on inwardly in our lives. It's not about religious observance, but it is about the heart. And if you want to chase this down later, a couple of really important passages here. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, we, we hear where God is not interested in all the outward trappings of religion, and the things that He lists there are all things that He had prescribed for Israel. And now He's saying, I'm not really not interested in those things. What I'm really interested in, Israel, is your heart. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba, and he's pouring himself out before the Lord. And and he says to God in that passage, he says, I'd give a sacrifice if you wanted it, but I know you don't want it. What you want is my heart. And so those two passages bring a lot of color, a lot of understanding to what Paul is talking about here. And verse 27 lets us know that such people condemn the ones who only have the outward religious thing going on. With verse 28 saying it explicitly, for no one is a Jew, no one is a true believer who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision or religion outward and physical, Verse 29, but a Jew, a true believer, is one inwardly, and circumcision or religion is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And then he tags this on, because his praise is not for man. In other words, it's not about what people say is true of you. It's not about, oh, you know what? They got baptized. Check. They became a member. Check. They're in a small group. Check. They have a place of service. Check. They give an offering. Check. That's man's approval. That's the things we look at. But God's not looking at that stuff. God's looking at your heart. His praise is not from men who oversee these religious practices, but from God. Religious rites and practices do not save. It's as simple as that. But it also is not that they are unimportant. Paul goes on to say, and now we're jumping into chapter 3 here, then what advantage has the Jew or what, uh, of, or, or what value is the value of circumcision or religion, much in every way? And he goes on to describe how the Jewish people were entrusted with the Word of God and that even, this is verses 3 and 4, even if some were unfaithful, even if some didn't get it, even if there were 
like people whose hearts were not for, for God, but they were in among the believers, okay, even if they were um, unfaithful and they had this faithlessness, none of that nullified the faithfulness of God. In other words, God was still working. Even if religious observance is sometimes practiced in an empty way by some who have not internalized it, it does not negate the work of God. And the push, though, is for us to, to be, this is verse 4, the latter part of verse 4, to be justified in our words and prevail when we are judged. God's going to look at our hearts, not how religiously observant we are. And then verses 5 to 8 makes the point that none of this gives us a license to be unrighteous, thinking that somehow it serves to show the unrighteousness of God. Again, that echoes Romans 6, and we'll deal with it in a lot more detail when we get there. And to that we hear, you know, Paul's response by no means. Kent Hughes says, you know, just dealing with, he says, if being bad, you know, so I can just go on and being a bad guy, and that's going to produce grace, and if being bad makes God look good, will be bad so he looks good. And to that, Paul says, you know, that's a hard no. We have to live holy lives. We have to be attentive to his word. We have to be about doing good, well-doing. And so, if this is your play, that somehow you can just play it safe and play it easy, that somehow you can just tick a few religious boxes. That empty, heartless religion is just going to lead to condemnation. And you're facing the wrath of God. And instead, the appeal at this point is for you to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Why would you delay? Under the threat of the wrath of God, why would anyone delay? By faith, give your life to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're facing this wrath. And so when we say in this series that the gospel is power, it also includes the power of the wrath of God, the demand that His holiness be appeased and honored. And so, repent. Engage in well-doing. Be attentive to the Word of God. Be a doer of it and give your heart to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, first I I would pray for those in the room and on the live stream, God, who have not yet given their life to Jesus Christ and with the imminent judgment of God coming. And having the testimony of the creation and the testimony of our own conscience inside of us. Knowing that there's a God. Just knowing you exist. And yet continuing to play fast and loose with the kindness that you've shown. God, I pray that there would be repentance today. I pray that any person who has not yet given their heart to Jesus Christ would hear the word of God. And by the Holy Spirit. Turn their life over to Him now and find the forgiveness of sins. And Father, to have that weight lifted that the wrath of God no longer applies to me because of what Jesus has done. And Father, for us as believers, this is such an incredible reminder to us 
shocking reminder, really, to ensure that there are no hints of hypocrisy in us. That as we look around the room and we see the people who are also seeking to walk with Jesus, God, that there isn't finger-wagging condemnation, but a genuine acknowledgement, Father, that we're all in this together and that, that sin's gripped all of our hearts and we're all just as much in need of the Savior's grace and love and forgiveness. And So God, give us the gentle spirit that you have and continue to build your church for your glory. Help us to understand all these facets of the gospel and to live these out day by day. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.